Hello, and welcome to the Horseman's Academy podcast. My name is Jake Lundahl. And I'm Amy Lundahl. What we're doing today is giving you an overview. It's kind of a virtual masterclass here in audio format. And the way this came about was over the Christmas holiday, we had a client of ours who is a non-pro reining horse owner. She hauled out to our place in Northeast Ohio from Illinois, and she was here for four days of lessons. She put her horse in training with us for a month, and then she came back for three more days of lessons that just wrapped up a couple days before we sat down to record. So we had a ton of time together to accomplish a lot of stuff during our lessons, both before and after that horse's month of training. We worked on fixing our horse's spins. We worked on lead changes. We worked on lead departures, collection and softness, speed transitions, sliding stops, the whole thing. So that is the context for this. And we're essentially going to recap everything we did during those lessons, as well as the horse's training, and go through some of the highlights and try to recreate that experience and lay out our program in audio form. That's what we're doing here on the podcast today. We're going to go through each exercise in order, step-by-step, the why behind it, and we're going to break everything down. This is probably the first time we've gotten on the podcast and laid out our entire philosophy for training an advanced horse in detail. Now, I want to say one thing before we dive into the training content, and it's answering the question of why we're sitting down and offering all this information for free. Of all the reasons we're doing this, here's the two most important. One, we want to help you. Our motto of this company and this podcast is making advanced horsemanship accessible. And if you, the listener, are like the horse owners that we work with and and train with every single day, once you get a good handle on the fundamentals, the Horsemanship 101, and you get beyond that certain level of the basics, the world of horsemanship knowledge and training expertise, it's like it dries up really fast. When you're first starting out and you're just learning the basics, you're kind of in a lush environment where there's good info in every turn. There's a lot of experts that teach general horsemanship knowledge. There's a lot of good info out there when it comes to basic groundwork, basic controls under saddle, you know, solving little tactical problems like how to teach a horse to lead or or back up or load on a trailer, things like that. But as you start to evolve beyond that and things become more advanced and more specialized, it's like the supply of info dries up. And, you know, if you're not running in the right circles, if you're not a customer of or you don't have access to certain little clicks or spears of influence around certain trainers, it's like you're kind of lost in this wasteland where you're not sure where to turn. I know that feeling because I've been there myself in the past. It's like being lost in the desert with no map. You know, you know, there's an oasis out there somewhere where you can get water, but you just don't know what direction to go and you end up drifting. I've been there myself and it's not even necessarily the fault of the trainers. And that leads into reason number two that we're doing this podcast today is because we know how hard this is and We know the reason why horsemanship, particularly advanced horsemanship, is so hard. It's hard to learn because as a general rule, the people at the top of the game who really get this stuff, the people who, from the perspective of a newbie with no experience, are working miracles with the horses they train, is because they possess a certain second nature intuition with horses. When people use the terms feel and timing, 
That's what they're really referring to is that second nature intuition, just knowing instinctively how much pressure to apply, when, when to release, being precise and instantaneous in that application to get the best result from the horse. It's second nature. It's intuitive. They're not sitting there logically pondering and puzzling over how to do it based on you know, what feedback they get or how the horse responds and therefore how do they need to adjust their hands, their legs, how they're holding the reins, what rhythm to kick with. They're not thinking about any of that. An advanced rider at a high level with elite feel and timing just does all of it. It's like they're in a flow state with the horse. It's unconscious. It's second nature. It's intuitive. It's muscle memory. Every action and little decision they make moment to moment is congruent with the horse and what they're trying to accomplish. That's elite feel and timing. And to really ride effectively at a high level, you need to start developing that ability in yourself if you're not naturally talented. Some people are born with it. Most are not. And I certainly fall into the latter camp. But the good news is if you're not naturally gifted, you can develop these skills. But you need the right kind of teacher. And that's, you know, there's a big reason why the most gifted people with high-level feel and timing with horses, have such a hard time teaching others how to replicate what they do. It's because everything they are doing is subconscious. That means they're literally not consciously aware necessarily of why what they're doing works. They just kind of have this instinctual feel for what the horse should have, you know, what they should be doing in the moment. Kind of like how you're usually, as you're walking around every day, you're not consciously aware of your breathing. Although if you think about it, you can bring it under voluntary control. But normally, if you're not thinking about it, it's like an app running in the background. And that effortlessness, that's how intuitive these high-level expert trainers, and I'm talking the world champions who've made millions of dollars doing this, that's the level that they're operating on. So when they try to teach the noob, the newcomer, the beginner, they have a tough time even verbalizing what they're supposed to do. I know that from previous experience as an assistant trainer, even riding with guys that I've paid to have them give me their knowledge, I've run into those same problems over and over. You know, here's a great scenario. I'll be riding around and, and I'll be watching this trainer I'm supposed to be learning from and they'll pick up on their horse's face and, and kind of soften them a particular way. And so you ask them, well, why'd you pick up on his face right there? And the answer you'll get is something like, oh, I don't know. I, I felt like he needed it just then, you know, and, and they really can't verbalize anything much deeper other than that's what they felt like the horse needed. And that was always really frustrating for me. Um, especially when I worked in the cutting industry, if I was turning back for a guy or working around on one, like, you know, we were getting two-year-olds started on cattle. And um, of course, those of you listening that have been an assistant trainer, you know that nothing you ever do is right. And here's a great example. You see the horse do something when the trainer's riding him. Maybe the trainer didn't like it. Maybe the trainer pulls the horse off the cow and, you know, gets in his face or gets his leg in him or, or whatever, he fixes whatever leaning or stiffness or lack of focus the horse had that the trainer didn't like just then. And then he turns him loose and, and puts him back on the cow. And then a few minutes later, you could be riding that exact same horse. That horse could make that exact same mistake. And you go to pick up and, and make the same correction that the trainer made. 
and you get called out for that. Or maybe you let it slide and, and you get called out for that. Like you just can't really win. And if you ask questions or try to wrap your head around why, what was it about those two scenarios that to you as the beginner felt and looked the exact same, but the trainer had something different in mind as to how you should have addressed it? And more often than not, the answer you'll get is, well, it's a judgment call or, you know, Sometimes you do want to correct him, but you also don't want to train on him too much. You know, you don't want to train the cow out of him. Um, or you get some generic line that it basically boils down to, I felt like it was right then to either leave him alone or pick up on him and reprimand him. And you're never able really to grasp that there was any logical reason behind it. It's just whatever that trainer's gut instinct told you. And that's deeply frustrating to a beginner and a learner. And I totally get that. And even if you're not an assistant trainer, say you're a non-pro or you're somebody that's interested in riding at a higher level, maybe not even to show, but you just want more buttons on your horse. You want that higher level of control. You're trying to learn this stuff. And it's really difficult because if you don't have somebody there holding your hand and guiding you through the entire process, you're overcome with a lot of questions. Anytime your horse struggles or has any kind of resistance whatsoever, you have questions in your mind of like, is it because I'm asking the wrong way? Um, maybe my horse, maybe he's too green for this. Maybe even if I'm doing the right thing, maybe it's too early. Maybe I'm putting too much pressure on him. Maybe I need to back off, you know, or, or maybe I need, maybe I'm not going hard enough. Maybe if I just stick with it, he'll come through it. And you don't quite know. And that uncertainty about the possibility that if you make the wrong call, you're going to mess your horse up. That's very unnerving. I totally understand where people are coming from on that because I've been in those shoes myself many times. So one of the things we're really trying to do with this podcast is we want to sit down and go through some of the highlights of the experience that this particular horse and this particular owner had when they came to work with us. We're going to take you through some of the things we worked on and the idea being, I want you to kind of visualize this in your mind. The more you're able to gain experience, whether in real life or simulated experience by watching training videos or listening to a podcast like this and visualizing it, visualizing you working through the same scenario, all of that will help improve your feel and timing and you just keep chipping away, building a more diverse and well-rounded understanding of how these little judgment calls work. Because when you start riding at a higher level, you know, it's like you almost become a decision-making athlete. Things are no longer as black and white as they were in the foundation stage when you were just, you know, doing one rein stops and cruising around and following the fence and teaching your horse to back up. Like we're talking about a higher level of do it now and a higher level of control here. And so we're going to go through some of these exercises, and, and I think there will be a lot of good lessons in this. All right, so let's go back to the very first lesson we did with this horse and owner, and this was around Christmas time last year. One of our highest priorities was to get a more advanced level of softness on this horse, because when she came in, could she flex laterally, and could she bend around at the walk, and and could she give her face vertically and break at the pull? Yes, but it was in kind of a half-hearted, not very committed way. And one of the things that we really started building up was more advanced levels of softness and what we call true softness. 
meaning you're driving the horse up into the bridle, the horse is breaking over at the withers, and the rest of their body is staying super relaxed. As they break over, typically their head and neck is going to be lower, and they're going to elevate their rib cage and their back and drive up in a collected frame, even at a walk. But we try to do that at all three gates. And how we start is what we call our advanced bending, or bending with vertical exercise where we're driving the horse forward and around on a tight circle, about 10 to 15 foot circle, just small enough that it's challenging, but not too big, you know, to where they're drifting and using half the arena and not too tight to where they can't physically walk forward. But about a 10 to 15 foot circle, we've got the horse's nose tipped to the inside point of their shoulder. So about a 45 degree angle with the inside rein. And then the outside rein, we've got a little bit of tension on that as well. And we're drawing our hands back to our belt. So we've got our reins kind of lengthened. And what we're inviting the horse to do is to drive up, soften both laterally and vertically into the bridle. And ultimately, we want to feel them break at the withers and actually relax their entire front end. And of course, we've got both of our legs on as needed. We're trying to get them to soften up and shape a little bit off our inside leg and bend their rib cage a little bit, you know, to kind of shape with the circle. But with our outside leg, we're keeping them on the circle because their instinct is going to be to try to drift off and, and bulge out. And so we're using that outside leg kind of up by the girth sometimes to prevent that shoulder from just leaving. This is a really good starting point, and we have a video on this that I'll put down in the link in the description of this episode where we go through some advanced body control stuff, and this is the starting point for everything. It's like we're setting an anchor uh, to where this is an exercise that the horse really knows and understands, and it's going to be the starting point in terms of shape and softness for other stuff that we're going to do. But the basic point is this. We need to start getting what we call true softness. An analogy I've heard recently and that I think makes perfect sense is like, imagine if, you know, your, ho your horse was the size of a cat. You know how you pick up a cat by the scruff of its neck? Well, imagine you were going to pick that horse up by his withers. The withers are going to be the highest part of his body. It's kind of a weird analogy, right? But kind of extreme. But the point being his withers are going to be the highest point on him. He's going to have his butt tucked up underneath him. His head and neck are going to be relaxed and low, not all the way down to the ground, but it's the withers that count. It's the entire head and neck and shoulders that we want to be relaxed and soft, right? And we want that horse to be on the bit. One of my biggest pet peeves and that everybody messes up when it comes to vertical flexion or getting face on a horse is when the horse ducks and snaps their chin down to their chest and hides from the rider's hands, but because they're creating a soft feel and slack momentarily in the reins, the rider interprets that as softness. What that really is at, at this level is evasion of pressure. What we want to do is drive the horse up to the bridle collected and have him accept that contact, not pulling, but allowing us to have some tension on the rein and kind of settling, as the English writers say, on the bit. We want the horse on the bit so that we have some tension and some contact there and therefore a direct line of communication to that horse's mouth at all times. 
the terms moldable or shapeable come to mind to where kind of like clay or putty, like it's soft, like you're not having to, you know, put a ton of effort in to shape it, but you can just softly shape it around versus like, like, I don't know if you've ever seen like a touch me not plant where like when you, when you run your fingers down the leaves, the leaves close and they're just kind of like shirking away from that. You don't, you don't want to feel like he's hiding his face from you or running away from your legs, just smooth, moldable moldable shape that you're able to create there where he's not overreacting to it, but he's also not, you know, throwing his head up, getting stiff, bracing against it. Just a smooth, buttery shape that you're able to create and feel. In this exercise, we use this to start teaching a mentality that you need to carry forth through the rest of your advanced riding, which is, as Amy alluded to, we don't want that searching evasive behavior that we see in so many horses, particularly ones that they've got a decent foundation in training, but maybe that owner was so focused on getting that horse flexing a ton side to side laterally, and they were they were really focused on getting the horse to break at the pole, and they were obsessed with the horse creating a soft feel to their hands, but as a byproduct of that, they've taught the horse how to waspily kind of snap and duck their nose around, hide their chin down towards their chest, and and even over-anticipate and kind of get ahead of when they even sense that the human's going to pick up on the reins. The horse is already nodding their head and searching, trying to hide from having contact put on their mouth. We don't want the horse to think that because we're touching their mouth, they're in trouble. We want their instinct to be when we pick up on them and create contact, we want their knee-jerk instant reaction to be to think softness and follow a feel and stay with you rather than look to duck, hide, and create slack and a total release of pressure. Now, another thing we talk about in this exercise is that we're looking for four-dimensional softness. This is something that we're chipping away at at an advanced level with everything we do. And it starts with this advanced bending exercise, this bending with vertical. We're no longer just interested in getting a soft feel to our hands. We want a soft feel, yes. We want the horse to be on the bit, accepting contact, but not offering resistance or pulling. But there's three other elements that we're going to be progressively pickier about. So we want a soft feel. We want that horse to be accepting of pressure, meaning they are completely relaxed. They're not just going through the motions of the exercise. They're actually mentally, there's a change in them, and they have settled into that groove that we've asked them for. So we've got softness, we've got acceptance. The other thing is balance. Even though that horse might be very soft and very relaxed, they might still be leaning or wiggling or kind of drifting on the circle. We want to start getting very picky about our horses being true underneath of us. Whatever shape we put them on, whether it's a circle or a straight line, we don't want them leaning and weaving and even shifting their weight in a way that we don't want. So we're going to stay on that circle until it's balanced as well. The final thing is rhythm or that horse's cadence in their feet, meaning you know, we, we're not going to let them be stoppy and starty. And, you know, as soon as we pick up and apply pressure to them, their feet either speed up or slow down and it's inconsistent. We're, we're going to be picky about establishing a certain cadence or rhythm in the horse's feet. And then when we pick up and ask them to soften on this bending circle, we're going to stay there until they resume that consistent pace and not being sticky, 
not being scampery, which greener horses will do in the beginning. We're going to stay in there till we get all four of those elements. I use the acronym SABR to remember them. S-A-B-R, softness, acceptance, balance, and rhythm. Softness, the most important, followed by that horse relaxing and accepting. Then balance, not leaning, and finally rhythm and consistent cadence in their feet. We're going to carry this philosophy over to everything else we do from here on out. So this is the last time we'll talk about that, but just keep that in the back of your mind. From this advanced bending, as shown in our video, we start to drive the shoulder off and take that into some shoulder in, shoulder out to get more advanced shoulder control, and two tracking or leg yielding to get more advanced hip control. We start them on the circle, drive the horse's shoulders or hips off the circle. When they're soft, we release, and we build that up to the point where it's really good on the circle first, and then we literally take that exact same concept first at a walk and trot, and we take that to a straight line going up and down the arena at a walk and trot, and we practice driving the horse up straight into their face vertically, getting that vertical flexion, and then hinging where we shape them to the left and to the right while their feet continue to walk forward on a straight line. We do that a lot in the early days at a walk and trot, and we did that a lot during this lesson, the first few sessions. We did more leg yielding and shoulder in, shoulder out at the walk and trot as well. Now, some of you may remember an email and a series of videos that I sent that kind of went along these same lines and how it was a big discovery for me, not just making it easier on the horse, but on the rider as well, to use that circle as a starting point to establish a more advanced type of softness. And once they got that feel, then start to get a little bit of advanced body control. Again, using the circle as the starting point and then flattening it out and taking it to the straight line. That method seemed to eliminate a lot of confusion and make things much clearer and easier to understand, both between the horse and rider and, you know, for the sake of the horse and their learning curve and the sake of the rider and their learning curve. And we found that that process just seems to work really, really well of kind of, you know, getting the feel for things on the circle, kind of finding your balance, kind of always having that reference point or baseline. Mm -hmm. To fall back on as we build these truly more advanced concepts, they were much more attainable quicker um, by using the circle as our anchor and finding these you know places or spots or you know different body movements from the circle and building building the confidence there, getting the concept really solidified, and then how much less resistance there was both in the horse and rider and in their communication together when we took it off the circle and went on the straight line. Right to your point. One of the things we always struggled with was getting more beginner level riders or advanced beginners to actually feel, for example, when the horse's shoulder was moving off their leg versus the horse just drifting sideways. Right. And we really like this way of teaching as it's so much more efficient in what you were hitting on, bridging the gap. Bridging the gap from like a beginner ready to move on, but instead of, you know, hitting a wall of all these advanced concepts, a much smoother transition into more advanced concepts. Right. And giving them a chance to develop a higher awareness of where the horse's body is at under you. And also when the horse is in motion, 
how to get your leg in them, and what it feels like when the horse actually, in good faith, for example, steps their hip off the correct way or drives their shoulder off versus just kind of lazily drifting away from your leg. That understanding and that feel is vital for your advancement as a rider, and so many people struggle with it. But the circle is the perfect way. It just eliminates so much confusion and makes it very clear if what you're doing is actually correct. We go into that in the video I've linked down below as well. So the whole concept here is we spend some time teaching that um, forward and around exercise or that bending with vertical exercise. And from there, we're able to pretty quickly build from that circle, from that beginning point, shoulder control, rib cage control, and hip control, all using that circle as an anchor. Once we get that established, then we just take that same, those same concepts, the shoulder control, rib cage control, and hip control all individually. We then move that onto a straight line. Yep. And by the end of that process, we've got that horse counterbending, two tracking, driving their hip up on a straight line, side passing, leg yielding. All that has been taught using that starting point from the circle. And here's the cool part. Half those things we didn't even have to work on and drill on specifically. They just come about as a natural byproduct of that advanced control that we taught on the circle. And we've eliminated so much resistance before going to a straight line that everything just happens way faster. And we can take this all the way up through walk, trot, and loping. For example, once we've done it at the walk and trot, then we'll start two tracking or leg yielding at a canter in preparation for lead changes. So that kind of goes into the question of, well, why do you teach all this stuff? That's one reason right there. Because we're not even doing maneuvers yet. So why, what's the point behind this? Why are we messing with this stuff? And that's the exact question that a lot of trainers will even say, you know, is like, if it's a reining guy, for example, well, I don't need counterbending on my horse. It's not something I'm going to show. So why would I need to teach that? Like, cool, but why aren't we spinning and stopping? And there's several reasons why we do this. The first and the most obvious is because the more we get our horse broke through the body, the more we get them accepting our legs and hands, we're able to drive their hindquarters off, we're able to drive their shoulders off, counterbend and shape them, and do that with no resistance, we're able to then take that understanding of that horse accepting pressure and being comfortable with it to a more intense maneuver, like lead changes and spins and stops, and put that intensive amount of pressure and demand on them without that horse getting rattled. In other words, we're building our horse's confidence in a huge way by getting them accepting and relaxed about this more dynamic level of pressure. And greatly reducing the chance of, you know, major meltdowns as we start to put more heavy demands on them and do even more complicated things such as changing leads. Right. The lead change is a good example of a maneuver that people come to us all the time seeking help with and seeking answers. And the bottom line is that a lot of the problems people experience in lead changes, whether that's the horse being forward and trying to half run off with them, getting bracy, getting chargy, kicking out at their leg, not, not accepting that leg pressure, um, or being hypersensitive to it, ducking and diving, not being balanced, just not being quiet and accepting of your legs coming on to ask for the change. A lot of problems in that maneuver can be solved, either either fixed if they already are there, 
or prevented by doing these more advanced body control exercises and getting our horse more broke to our legs and hands. That's what these exercises are for. It's about either preventing bad habits from ever taking root in the first place, or it's about fixing problems that people are already having, or it's about maintaining. If you've done your job correctly, being able to maintain and even refine that horse's good habits about how they accept pressure, how soft and responsive they are to your legs, you're able to maintain that edge over time and not let things get rusty. So for example, a big thing we did in our lessons with this non-pro reigning horse owner was use these leg yielding exercises to get her horse more accepting of that pressure and moving off her leg in a more definite and committed way because one of her horse's issues is that it was just kind of sluggish and half-hearted and not really consistent about when she put that leg back actually yielding and, and the horse doing it with some integrity meaning balanced putting actual effort in moving laterally off her leg under its own power in trying to get those leg yielding exercises accomplished, even though we're kind of breaking down and deconstructing things, we're not working on maneuvers, we're working on a subcomponent, right? We're just focusing on the leg yielding. But that exposed and gave us a chance to fix that horse's resistance and sluggishness and even kind of halfway sorry attitude sometimes and reluctance about moving off of the rider's leg willingly. But we dug into that issue, we got that issue fixed by working on these leg yielding exercises, as well as the shoulder control, the counter bending that we did, being able to put that horse, take them in and out of different shapes, put them in a different bind, and when that horse was comfortable and relaxed and accepting of what was going on, and not either ignoring the rider or getting bracy and resistant, but was relaxed, was following that feel, was responsive. We were rewarding that. Then when we went back and actually approached those maneuvers, we had a much better result. She was changing leads effortlessly by the end of our first private lesson. And then of course, when she came back for training, that lead change was all the more automatic. Zero fuss whatsoever. It had become a natural part of our overall loping program, and it was no longer a big deal. It was no longer a fuss, and it was no longer a fight. All the while continuing to work with the owner on, you know, getting getting her comfortable and confident with these exercises. And, and the kicker with that is allowing her to develop her feel and timing through learning these exercises and how much that helped her when you guys went back to maneuvers as well. 100%. And that brings up a key point I want to make before we go further, which is a lot of trainers shy away from showing this stuff to their clients. And a lot of riders who are trying to learn and get better, who desire to be at a more advanced level, are very intimidated by this stuff and are afraid that, you know, trying things out and kind of tinkering and exploring these exercises is going to damage their horse in some way. The reality is, we have to start giving riders more of a chance to learn these things and not try to hold them back or shield them from these exercises. And we need to give people the freedom to experiment with this stuff and give them a chance to figure out their feel and timing and balance as riders. And we've seen this play out in a couple different scenarios where, you know, someone who was kind of a floundering non-pro when we met him, you know, very 
mediocre performance, kind of struggling in a lot of ways. And, you know, with a little bit of help in the right coaching and maybe a little help with the training, like they go on to be super independent and so confident and having the time of their lives. Whereas that doesn't always fit with some people's program where they're trying to keep clients, you know, beholden or shackled or tied to, you know, needing a trainer to to fix all these things. You know, this particular reigning horse owner that we worked with, I told her at the end of our last lesson just a couple days ago, I said, you've mastered this program to the point where you just about don't need me anymore. Like I'm still here. I'm still a resource to coach you. But you've got a really good grasp on the system now. And aside from little tweaks and refinements and ideas to throw in the mix here and there, you've got the game plan, you know, and this is just one of many recent examples of clients we've worked with who have evolved out of the need to work with a trainer so intensively one-on-one. And I think that is just a sign. Like I take that as a huge compliment. A recent example that we use a lot is a a non-pro cowhorse owner that we've worked with quite frequently. I'd say for the past three or four years, um, probably the past three years pretty intensively. I did a podcast where I referenced a coaching call I had with him a while back last year, I think. And the bottom line with that cowhorse client is he went from being someone who couldn't lope without having a death grip on the saddle horn to now he's going down the fence at rain cowhorse shows. He's showing and cutting. And he sent me some videos recently of two little girls, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old girl that he is now showing them the ropes and getting them involved in cutting. He's letting them ride two of his horses, one of which he bought and one of which he had in training with us for a while, um, that these girls are now showing and learning about cutting and rain cow horse, and he's coaching them. And he really doesn't need me anymore. He brings me out occasionally to do lessons, but it's more like he's a facilitator now and his family and other people that he's introducing to riding at a higher level, they are the ones that I'm really going there to teach and obviously hang out with him. But the point being, that's a, you know, it's a great compliment for us when the people we work with graduate and move beyond needing our services. We exist as the bridge to get somebody from a foundational, just basic 101 level understanding of horsemanship and riding to a point where they can go pursue things at a more advanced level. And it's just the sky is the limit from there. If you want to be showing, if you just want to enjoy more control with the horses that you have and a higher level of partnership and discover what you've been missing all those years and what horses are actually capable of when they have a certain level of training, that's what we're trying to get people to. So when we say making advanced horsemanship accessible, it's not just something that we thought sounded good. That is our actual defining mission. Yeah, I've had a few conversations with some people recently kind of just addressing from from their perspective how they feel like there's not a lot of new blood coming into the horse industry and how can we bridge that gap and how can we get people, you know, in into this sport and get really get them hooked and really get them loving it. Well, 
to me, this is like the the perfect recipe here is let's let's craft horsemen and give horsemen the tools to be independent to where then they're doing kind of their own quote outreach, if you want to put it that way. And they're bringing in people on their own. But it starts with helping people accomplish their goals and giving them a path to get there instead of staying stuck in a rut or staying, you know, stuck shackled to, you know, the same three exercises with no broader knowledge. And the final note I'll say on this point, and I I sent an email out to my email subscribers a while back talking about what really pushed me to develop this system. And it was when I had a private lesson with a client who, due to some nervous system damage due to an injury she had, she had diminished use of her arm and leg on one side of her body. And so I had to come up with a system or, or modify the exercises that I knew at the time to try to make it very easy for her, not only to use her leg effectively, that was probably the biggest sticking point in that lesson, but to feel in a very obvious way when, for example, the horse was actually yielding its hindquarters while its feet were in motion, i.e. leg yielding or two tracking with the hip actually leading the way as opposed to the horse just lazily drifting. Same thing with the shoulder stepping that shoulder off into the the baby steps, the beginning of a true counterbend, rather than the horse simply moving diagonally away from her leg and just kind of drifting or leaning away from her leg instead of giving to it and responding to it in a committed way. When you're first learning, it's very difficult to tell where the horse's body is under you and where their feet are under you. But These exercises give you a framework to practice that is very unmistakable about what the horse is doing, when to release, and as a result, you can chip away at building your own feel and timing and start thinking at a higher level rather than just, oh, I have a soft feel because there's slack in the reins. No, you start bringing those other elements online as well. You start developing and cultivating some awareness of not just softness, but was the horse actually relaxed doing the exercise or were they just going through the motions, right? That higher level of commitment. Then you start being picky about, well, for example, going back to this, this private lesson and getting our horse doing that vertical flexion on a straight line at all three gates, are we just getting a soft feel and is the horse relaxed? Okay, we've got those two things. Now, is the horse balanced or are they leaning consistently one way or another? And then that becomes, all right, well, now we've got advanced tools to fix it. Instead of just being shackled and limited to one option, which is if my horse leans left, then steer right when I get to the end of the arena. Well, now I can, for example, if they're leaning their shoulder right, when I get down to the end, rather than just turning them left, I can counterbend and drive that shoulder up off my leg and kind of call that out in a definite way that doesn't rattle my horse's cage, but makes it very obvious and and in fact overcorrects that shoulder leaning and addresses it effectively. I can make that into a transition, or it's just something I can throw in as I'm riding around, or maybe I don't go all that way and, and make a definite reprimand like that, but As I'm going up and down the arena, practicing that horse's straightness and balance, I'm able to get my legs into them, keep driving them up to the bridle and get that collected shape while helping them stay on track and balanced with one leg or the other, depending on where they want to lean. And all horses in the beginning stages 
are going to be wanting to lean and be wiggly, but I'm able to get my legs in them and help them stay on track on that invisible rail that I've set them on because they accept that more dynamic pressure. And I can get my legs in them and help them without creating a fight. So that was the bulk of probably the first day and a half of our first private lesson we had, which was establishing that more advanced softness and collection on the circle, being able to shape on that circle to the inside and outside, getting more shoulder and hip control starting on the circle, and then transplanting all of those concepts to the straight line and doing that at all three gates, walk, trot, and yes, at the canter as well. We practiced a lot of not only driving the horse up and getting them soft and collected on the circle, but shaping them to the inside and to the outside, even at a canter, because that virtually eliminated resistance when we took the horse onto a straight line and did things like practice our vertical flexion at a canter or practice two tracking at a canter in preparation for lead changes. So we've got a more advanced level of softness and body control on this horse. Now we can start going back and addressing individual maneuvers that this rider wanted help with. And one of the biggest things in her mind was the spin because this horse's spins were pretty messy. They were not committed, meaning the horse was always kind of leaning and wanting to walk out of the spin. Um, the horse really had no rhythm in its feet, and it would just kind of jump and hop and flounce around and, and really not settle or find any kind of rhythm in how it was firing. And it wasn't using its hindquarters at all. Again, going back to a lack of mental commitment and wanting to leave the spin, the horse wasn't loading up or using its hindquarters effectively to create a platform for a balanced turn. It had no desire to stay in the spin and help get that accomplished. Everything in its body language said, I want to leave. So when we're talking about the spin, we train in multiple layers. The first layer and the most important thing we need to establish is actually teaching the horse what their job is. Getting that mental commitment aspect of wanting to stay in the spin with you and so that you don't have to be physically holding them back and keeping pressure on their mouth lest you slacken the reins and they go to leap forward and leave. You shouldn't have to hold the horse in the turn the entire time and you should not have to be constantly machine gun kicking to make them turn and then the moment you stop kicking for one millisecond, the horse shuts off because every fiber in their being says they don't want to be there and they don't want to turn for you. That is the majority of horse owners experience, however, when they try to get a turnaround or a spin. They have to manufacture it and make the horse stay in there and make them do it. We want the opposite. We want to set it up to where the horse wants to turn, and we do that through a sequence that we call our forward and around exercise. This is where, in contrast to the advanced bending that we talked about earlier, where we've got bending with vertical, both lateral and vertical shape and collection on the circle, in this case, we're actually trying to keep the horse's head, neck, and body as straight as possible from their nose to their tail and balanced and stood up correct while walking a tight circle forward and around. So we still have forward motion, but the horse's body is much straighter. This obviously is a major challenge because the horse wants to bend and kind of arc their body and go with the circle. And so in the process of trying to keep them stood up and straight while their feet still make a circle, 
you as the rider are having to figure out, okay, how do I need to hold the reins? How do I need to get my legs in the horse to help them stay straight, not to let, not let them dive in, not let them lean out, try to keep them straight and balanced as I can. Oh, and at the same time, keep pushing them forward again, up into the bridle. We're getting vertical flexion, no lateral, but we still got vertical flexion going. And so your legs have that dual mission. Try to keep the horse balanced and straight and keep them moving forward and around on that tight little 10-foot circle. Now, the point of why we're doing this, why we're driving the horse forward and around, it's two things. One, we want to set the horse up so that when they start turning, they start in the most balanced, optimal way possible. We want to make it a habit that that horse needs to be balanced when they're spinning. We also have a little forward energy in their feet, which is easy to then redirect into the turn. But we're not just jogging a circle with the horse bent around and then spiraling them into the turn like many trainers do. We have two sets of circles, effectively, two concentric rings. There's an outer ring or a larger circle. That's our forward and around circle where we're driving the horse up to the bridle straight, getting them balanced and set up in an optimal way for a spin. Then when we feel like the horse is ready, we're going to open the door with our inside leg and initiate the turn. In the beginning, we'll help the horse a little bit to get started with a little bit of outside rein, a little bit of inside rein to help them, and a little bit of outside leg bumping with rhythm. But once the horse is turning, we completely release our hands forward and leave them totally alone. The only time we'll put any additional pressure on the horse is if we need energy in their feet. So if they take a step and then they stop turning, we'll bump with rhythm with our outside leg or cluck if necessary to keep energy in the feet. What we're doing, and again, we have videos on this. It's in the link below down in the description. But why this system works so well is because you're making the release of pressure. You're building that release of pressure into the maneuver itself. You're making the spin be the place where the horse wants to be because that's where you're leaving them alone. You're building that desire when you're driving them out forward and around and setting things up that you're creating this desire for you to open the door, let the horse then turn. And it only takes a few repetitions in most cases before the horse realizes where that release of pressure is and what their job is. And they start looking for that door to open. They start wanting to spin and you build that desire for them to stay in that inner circle where the spin is happening with you. You start to build that mental commitment and that draw. Now, of course, if the horse leaves and tries to lurch forward or gets confused or lost or isn't turning, what do you do? Drive them forward and around again, set it up again, present the option again. And you will sometimes go through a sequence of that. But as I said, very quickly, the horse understands where to go. And over several sessions, you build that desire to where you're going to feel that horse start to load up and that desire to stay in the turn with you is going to be built naturally. This will come in very handy when we start to add speed because you can rely on the fact that that horse is taking responsibility for maintaining their balance. And as they turn faster, they commit to loading up on their hindquarters and pivoting on that hind foot more and more to counteract the centrifugal force that is pulling them out of the spin forward. They will actually fight to stay in the turn with you. 
So we spend a lot, and I mean a lot of time in training, building that desire. And that is something we accomplished during our first private lesson with this owner to the point where that spin was pretty darn good, but it wasn't a finished product yet. And that's where we put the second layer in, which is being able to train on the horse, get in their face, refine things if necessary, while the horse is spinning. Because now they have such confidence in their job and they know roughly how to do that maneuver that we can now get our legs in them, get our hands in them, even while they're spinning and make little more corrections and refinements without blowing up the whole maneuver or rattling that horse's confidence. And of course, this entire time, except for us making those corrections, you know, we're leaving the horse completely alone in the face, letting them achieve that natural balance. The final touch, of course, is to where we'll spin that horse with a slight draw on the reins to just have that extra pinpoint control of where their nose is and teach them that, you know, we can draw on the reins just a bit harder and that's their cue to spin even faster. So in a show setting, for example, in reining, we're able to pilot that horse to a much more precise degree. They accept that contact on their face and it doesn't inhibit their momentum and foot speed in the spin. They know their job well enough. They're able to accept that guidance while still performing that high intensity maneuver. So those are kind of the three layers of the spin. We built the first layer during that initial lesson. The second and third layers are something we worked on heavily for that month of training. And then when the owner came back into the picture for the subsequent follow-up lesson, that is something that we worked on extensively during those three days. All right, so we've talked about spins. Now let's talk about sliding stops. This was something that this owner, when she came here with her horse for their initial private lesson with us, this was another thing she really, really wanted help with because even though her horse has the talent to do it, she had never felt a true sliding stop. Those of you that have stopped horses, especially at a high level, you know there's a certain element of feel and timing that goes into it. Where in the horse's stride do you cue for it? The rundown and the setup for the stop has to be correct. There's a lot that goes into that. So this rider, as a greener, non-pro reiner, she didn't have that experience. She hadn't been on a lot of advanced horses that knew how to stop that could help her develop that feel. And on top of that, her horse didn't really know and didn't have that confidence, especially to run and stop at a faster speed. So neither one of them were able to really help each other, and they were kind of stuck in this limbo. So just like with the spin, we break the stop down into several levels. The most important foundational one being, just like the spin, teaching the horse that mental commitment aspect of being responsible for their own balance and engaging their hind end. And we tie that to the word woe. So that starts even in the earlier stages of training. And we talk about this in our Colt starting series and other videos where we're doing that little rollback exercise on the fence and coming up and saying, whoa, every time. And rather than really cranking on the horse's face to pull them into the ground and make them stop, you're just tipping their nose into the fence or whatever visual barriers in front of you. And through repetition and saying the word whoa every time you do that, you tie that word to a couple ideas in the horse's mind, mainly big, massive change and redirection of their feet, 
loading up on their hindquarters so they get balanced and can roll back and get back through themselves. So just using the horse's powers of anticipation, they start to associate the word woe with sticking their butt in the ground and engaging those hindquarters in a big way. So that was one of the first exercises that we reviewed was that rollback exercise. And then we took it off the fence and we started just loping little circles, getting the horse softened up and framed up on the circle like she knew how. And then at random intervals, particularly if the horse wasn't really expecting it, we would say the word whoa and ask that horse to stop. Obviously, we're going at a low to medium speed, so they're not going to slide, but we want them to really engage their hindquarters and stick their butt in the ground. And if they didn't do it, if the horse didn't stop at all or stopped but not well, and keep in mind, this is with no help from the rider's seat or the reins. We're not pulling on their face to make them stop, and we're not throwing our weight back trying to get the horse to stop off of our seat. We're just isolating the word woe right now. Kind of similarly how we were working on the spin and layers. I think of like layers like an onion to where this is just the first layer of tying that word woe to the horse's feet. Right. Or people in the tech world, you know, they talk a lot about talent stacking where different skills or abilities, you know, there's kind of a sequence in which they build on each other and you have these levels of knowledge that you're able to apply. And that getting the horse hooked on the word woe is that first level. So going back to that exercise, again, we're not trying to help them in any way. We're isolating the word as our cue. And then if the horse doesn't stop or they do, but not well, meaning they're pitched over, their weight is on their front end, they're just kind of half-hearted sort of dribbling down instead of making a committed effort to get in the ground and stop, then we're going to turn them around using an exercise we call turning around on the foot. We've talked about this quite a bit before in other podcasts. This is a very versatile exercise that we use as a correction, a redirection, a reprimand in some cases. Really what you're doing, it's like a slow, methodical spin or a turnaround, except that you have the horse's head bent around, typically about 90 degrees, some horses a little further around to your inside toe. So if you're turning around on, that's why we call it turning around on the foot, because you're bending the horse's nose around towards your own foot. And depending on how much bend you have, and at the same time, drawing the outside rein across their neck, you're kind of putting that horse in a little bit of a bind. And what you're doing is trying to turn them around in place, break their shoulder loose, and get them to loosen up that front end and, and come with you, while at the same time, get them to load up and shift their weight back onto their hind end. Through association and through repetition, what the horse will start to anticipate is that when they hear the word woe, they need to get their weight off of their front end, but keep their head, neck, and shoulders and front legs relatively relaxed and loose, but load up on their hindquarters and kind of create that platform because they're anticipating that you may pick up and draw them around into that turn. If you've ever seen, for example, cow horse or, or cutters working on a cow or, or on a flag, the types of turns that they do where the horses oftentimes, you know, they're kind of stepping behind, they're drawing them around, they've got their head bent. That's kind of the type of turn that we're talking about. It's not a spin where the horse's head and neck are straight. We're using that lateral bend as leverage and kind of almost keeping the horse corralled there a little bit and deliberately putting them in a little bit of an uncomfortable bind just to make a statement of like, come back to me, get your weight back on your haunches, 
break your shoulders loose and and have some fluidity and not just plunge all your weight onto your front end and pogo stick slam into the ground. Now, once we've got the word whoa operating and we've got the horse making the correct association, now, just like the spin, we can come back and add that additional draw and rein contact on their face. So, you know, we'll start doing things like on our circles or maybe we kind of peel off the circle and we're just kind of loping around, seeing if we at a medium speed without running the horse hard yet, just kind of stopping at random intervals around the arena where we feel the horse is relaxed and running uphill, meaning they're actually driving off their hindquarters, they're soft, they're balanced, and they're straight, not leaning. Only then are we going to allow them to stop, and we are going to start adding that draw on the reins when we pick up and say, whoa. Our correction is the same. If it's a crappy stop or the horse really ignores that word whoa or they feel heavy on our hands, we're going to use that turnaround to, again, break those shoulders loose, get their weight back, create and reinforce that association in their mind that they need to be thinking about. But if the horse has any modicum of talent whatsoever, they'll start sticking their butt in the ground even at a low speed. You may not be sliding, but you'll get a really balanced and engaged and committed stop deep in the ground. And that's what this horse was doing. Something that helped me understand this exercise or kind of wrap my head around it was to think like, okay, when the horse is stopping well, what is he doing? He's he's loading up on his hindquarters. There's a disproportionate amount of his weight on his hindquarters. That's what creates that balance, that ability to eventually slide. You kind of see where this is going. So when it's a poor stop, usually they're kind of front end heavy, right? They're dumping all on that front end. So what made this correction make sense in my mind was, well, how how more obvious can you be of like, hey, use your hind end, not, not dump on your front end, but to completely take that front end kind of away from them by, by you know, taking them around in that turn on the foot and how, how obvious and clear that is to the horse of like, hey, you were really front end heavy. In this, in this turning around on the foot, you have no option but to load up on your hindquarters. And they start again using that positive anticipation. We're using that horse's natural anticipation to our, to our benefit and to our favor here of like, okay, stop, but also load up on your hindquarters instead of dumping on the front end. Otherwise, that front end's going to have to be pedaled around here. Right. And of course, you're subtly planting seeds for the next layer, which is even as you're riding around at a low to medium speed and doing these little stops on whoa, you're only allowing the horse to stop and get that massive release of pressure when they're loping straight, when they're relaxed and they feel balanced, you know, and then over time you can start building up speed. Now we do that on the circle first, and we're going to talk about circles here briefly because this stuff starts to kind of tie together. Before we can start practicing balanced rundowns and building speed stride for stride correctly, we need to have that horse operating on the circle really well first. And we're going to practice our speed transitions on the circle, practice getting, getting the horse soft and framed up on the circle. And one of this particular horse's problems coming into the lesson was just a loss of focus on the circle, meaning that, and this is something that I discussed on the phone with this owner before she ever showed up at my place. She was kind of frustrated about the fact that she'd go around on the circle 
and she'd kind of check that horse's face, you know, kind of soften them up to the bridle vertically, what what have you. If they were wandering on the circle, she'd pick up, get the horse put back on the circle. And then it was like immediately when she released or gave the horse any slack in the reins, the horse immediately fell out of frame and started kind of wandering and lost the circle again. And it was this constant back and forth of her henpecking the horse and having to micromanage it because if she let up for one instant, it was just going to leave the circle, come completely out of frame, get hollowed out and, and just scrambly and feel gross instead of staying put together and collected and committed to the circle. And so she's constantly having to babysit this thing instead of being able to rely on the horse taking some responsibility for maintaining that more by themselves. So we threw a couple of exercises in working on these circles to get the horse more committed, not only to establishing frame and holding that longer and not having to be held there by the person the entire time, but also to get dialed in on the circle so you didn't have to constantly have you know, you didn't have to constantly be in their mouth the entire time all the way around. Just like the spin, we want to teach a higher level of mental commitment. The horse has got to kind of meet us halfway and take over some of that responsibility. Otherwise, we're just constantly henpecking their face all day. So in working on our circles initially, and we translate these same concepts and corrections to the straight line later, but as with the earlier steps in our program, we start on the circle first. And there's three types of reprimands or corrections we're making depending on what that horse shows us. Correction number one is the simplest. And this is something we do at clinics and lessons a lot. We did this a lot in our initial private lesson with this horse and owner, which is we're going to put the horse on the circle. Typically, we'll go a minimum of one lap around and kind of help the horse just establish the circle. Then we're going to put our hands forward and turn completely loose of the reins. Let them flap in the breeze. Yet our body language and posture and all our intention as a rider is focused on that imaginary circle. But what we're doing is we're daring the horse to leave and lose focus. We showed them where the circle is. We got them started. Now we're turning them loose and seeing how much they're, they're actually with us mentally. And typically, the horse will start to drift. Most of them will try to leave the circle to the outside. Some of them are worse about it than others. Some horses will just look off to the outside of the circle and lose focus. Others will just blatantly run off the circle and try to leave completely. So no matter what happens, the moment they commit to that mistake, if it's to the outside of the circle, we're going to turn them really hard, 90 degrees, still loping, so we don't let them break gait. But we turn 90 degrees and cut straight across the middle of that circle that we were originally on. So we cut across through the middle of the circle, we get to the other side, and we rejoin our original circle. And by that point, especially if it's the first couple times we've done it, because we picked up and cut across the circle in such a dramatic and obvious way, and the horse usually isn't expecting it, so typically they're a little bit rattled, right? So then we'll spin the next circle We've got them pushed up to the bridle. We're getting them kind of reset and finding our circle again. And when the horse is soft and relaxed and they're on our circle, we're going to ease our hand forward, give back to them, and again, put them on a completely loose rein and dare them to leave. And we'll repeat that process sometimes for 10, 15 minutes in, in a single session until what? That horse isn't trying to leave the circle. 
Now you may ask, well, what happens if the horse dives into the circle? In that case, you've got a couple of options. If the horse is greener or you haven't done a lot of rollbacks and stop on woe, or you've not really taught the turn on the foot exercise by that point, you can just kind of make a screaming U-turn and, and turn the opposite way. So if you're loping a left circle and the horse is leaning in on your left circle, then you can just turn out of the circle in a really sudden and dramatic way and then lope off to the right again. Anytime the horse tries to lean in on you, you just redirect their feet like that. We do that in the greener stages, but once the horse knows and we've used that stop on woe exercise, we've used that turn on the foot as a redirection and a correction, then that's what we're going to use. And that's way more effective typically. If the horse is diving into the circle, typically they're leaning that shoulder in and kind of leaning over and their weight is shifted over. We'll call that out right in that moment and turn the horse out of the circle. And we're going to stay in that turn on the foot in place until what? The horse gets back to us, shifts their weight back, loads up on their hind end, and they're turning around relatively smooth and soft. Typically, you'll make that correction. You know, you're going from a dead lope to then, boom, you stop and pull them around, turn them around on their foot. Again, you're kind of rattling the horse's cage a little bit. It's an extreme redirection of the feet. What I like about it, though, is, again, it's an exercise the horse already knows, we're just applying it in a different circumstance. So it's really going to get their attention and slightly rattle them a bit, but it's not, it's not an overpressure. It's not something they haven't experienced before. So you're not making a fight out of it either. You're making an effective statement of, nope, I don't like that. I'm going to call that out and I'm going to fix it. But you're not escalating the situation into a fight like you would be if you know, if the horse is leaning, you start really kicking and banging on him aggressively with your spurs and turn what was a leaning circle and kind of a, a relatively minor problem. Now you've escalated that into a pissed off leapy fight. This is a way, again, it's a very dramatic listen to me type exercise. So depending on what the horse is doing, if they're leaning in on the circle, we're going to turn them out and turn them around on the foot. And then when they come back to a soft, we resume our circle like it never happened get in, get out. If they're leaving the circle to the outside and wandering or losing focus, which is the more common problem, we're going to cut across the middle of our circle. Again, making kind of an extreme redirection. Now, if the horse just blatantly blasts off the circle and goes to leave, can you use the turn on the foot in that correction as well, even though the horse was going outside instead of diving in? Yes, technically you can, and sometimes I will in the extreme cases. But if you're doing this type of circling program, the horse should be broken up by now that it's not like a green colt that doesn't know where to go in the arena. We're getting a little more picky here about slightly more advanced horses that nevertheless lose focus or aren't committed to finding the circle. Now, the other thing that we'll throw in that's even a little bit more intensive again, and this kind of ties into getting the horse to take more responsibility for maintaining their own frame and collection. What I would have this owner do is establish the circle again. Say we're, we're loping a circle to the left, just a big circle using most of the arena at kind of a low to medium pace, whatever rhythm that she wants to settle into. And we would go through a sequence where I'd have her go from a completely loose rein on the circle to picking up and asking that horse for vertical flexion, 
asking that horse to drive up and get deep into the bridle and give her a more committed level of softness than she was typically asking for. Because that was kind of a theme in our lessons is that she was apprehensive about picking up too firmly on that horse's face, asking for too much vertical flexion to the point where she got a negative reaction. But by kind of holding back and not going all the way, she'd created a habit in the horse of sort of half-heartedly giving her like a momentary give and then just resuming whatever it had been doing previously. She wasn't really staying on this horse's mind and being effective enough. So that is something we really tried to address in this lesson. And the way we did it is as she's loping around, say on a, on a relatively large left circle, if she picked up and asked that horse for really committed softness, really committed vertical flexion, and she got any kind of resistance whatsoever, the horse threw its head up, hollowed out, tried to leave the circle, right, got stiff in the face, etc. Whatever the case was, her correction for that would be to drive more aggressively with her legs and take the horse onto a tighter circle, still going the same direction. So she kind of spiral in and make a tighter, in this case, left circle while trying to speed the horse up, kicking in rhythm with her legs, both asking the horse to lope faster and drive up to its face in a more committed way. Again, what we're doing is we're putting the horse in a bind and challenging them for that committed softness. And at the same time, we're pushing the horse faster. We're really making a point to try to drive them up into the bridle because for true softness and true collection, we need that impulsion, don't we? We need that drive off the hind end, which is really what this horse was reluctant to give her. It was kind of backing off of her hands and just not really committed to driving up there in a true and honest way. So her tactic to call that out was to drive it onto a tighter, faster circle. And when the horse did soften up, got collected, was relaxed, she would ease her hand forward and let the horse ease out onto their original larger circle. So again, this whole idea of building the release of pressure into the maneuver that you want the horse to do, that big circle went from being the area where the horse was just kind of getting nitpicked and nagged about, you know, pick up, check on your face, release momentarily, and then pick up again. And it was kind of this cat and mouse back and forth game that the horse was used to. We completely flipped the script on that. We made that larger circle kind of an oasis where if that horse was traveling around really soft and gathered up and collected and maintained the circle by himself, we left that horse completely alone. It was only when the rider picked up, asked for additional softness, or wanted to correct something if that horse had any kind of a negative reaction to that, we kind of made an overcorrection by driving the horse onto a faster, smaller circle and really made an issue out of the fact that, hey, you need to follow that feel, stay with me, drive up to your face and get soft. Now, as a byproduct of that, not only did the horse figure out where it was easiest to be and started maintaining that frame on the circle by itself, but when we started practicing speed transitions and building speed on the circle and then easy, you know, relaxing and bringing the horse down to a smaller circle at a slower pace, when we started doing that, Guess what that horse was doing when the rider asked for more speed? It was already in a habit of what? Driving up to its face 
in a more dramatic way. So the horse was associating faster speed with get more committed, collected, get in frame, drive harder off your hindquarters, right? It was driving up and meeting that bridle and getting even more collected by itself without her having to do anything special. And because she's not having to sit there micromanaging and manufacturing that frame with the reins, her balance was improved because there's less moving parts going on. So she was able to focus more on her legs and her seat and achieving a better rhythm with the horse at that faster pace. So she's sitting better now. She's staying out of the horse's way. She's not bouncing and jostling around. Her and the horse are now in a groove together where they're both congruent. The horse is more comfortable now running at a faster speed, and it associates faster speed with get soft, get collected, drive up into your face without her having to do all of that herself. Does that make sense? So obviously in being smart about managing that horse's air during our lesson, that was something we focused on really heavily. And a theme that we developed kind of going with circling and just how that horse was loping in general and trying to get the lead changes better, we can't forget about counter cantering. This was kind of a weak area that this horse came in with. We did a lot of work on this during our initial lesson. And then during the month of training I had with the horse, this is something I really focused heavily on building up and getting better and stronger because this horse really wasn't comfortable to counter canter at all. And it exhibited a lot of habits and kind of mental traps that are very typical. For example, the horse paying more attention to the geometry of the arena and what direction you're going rather than the rider's legs. So for example, if you were kind of following the perimeter of the pin and going around one of the ends and, and turning left, the horse would always just assume that if you wanted to lope him off with the fence on his right side, then he should take the left lead. Even if you were putting your left leg back, trying to set him up really nice, drive, you know, stand that right shoulder up and trying to drive him off in the right lead, because he was used to always taking the left lead when the fence is on his right side, he would do that regardless, effectively ignoring the rider. So in order to break that habit, we needed to do more counter cantering and get this horse used to loping around, getting shaped up in whatever lead we ask for, and staying relaxed no matter where we are in the arena. How we started again was with counter cantering circles picking up, say, the right lead to start with and trying to carry that onto a left circle and try to maintain that right lead lope as best as we could. And in the beginning, this horse was constantly flipping out of lead because it hadn't really been counter-cantered that much in its career. The counter-canter had been used sparingly and it had been used to create a situation of discomfort so that when the rider switched legs, the horse would be more eager to take that lead, that you know, the opposite lead or, or going with the circle. So the only counter cantering it had ever done had effectively taught the horse that it didn't want to be counter cantering and whatever way it was turning, it needed to take that lead. So it was constantly flipping out of lead no matter where we were at in the arena or what direction we were asking for. But of course, in the interest of not escalating this into a fight, we just had to patiently chip away at it. Every time the horse would flip out a lead or start cross-firing or try to break gate, we just have to reset it, you know, break her down to a trot, get a reset, 
lope off in the lead that we actually asked for, and then try to carry that momentum onto the circle. And gradually, just kind of chipping away at it, we built the horse's confidence to where it could counter canter multiple circles on that opposite lead and stay completely relaxed about it. That was kind of our starting point. Just establish the circle first. And then, of course, we can start doing all that softening and shaping on the circle, counter cantering, just like we did when we were circling with the lead. And I know we've talked about that before. And again, that's something we show in the videos that I've linked down below in the description. It's an extremely important part of what goes into a lead change. But not just that. As I said, getting the horse super relaxed and super honest and actually listening to your legs and staying relaxed no matter where you're at in the arena Instead of just taking that decision away from you and guessing what lead you want based on what direction their nose is pointing or where the fence is in relation to them. A lot of horses get in those bad habits and they're not being honest about actually listening to the rider. They're, as I said, taking that decision away from you. But if you want to ride at a higher level, you've got to start calling that out a little bit. You kind of went with that when the horse was greener. Now we got to be more demanding and picky about no matter where we're at or what angle we're traveling at, when I put my left leg back and ask for the right lead, you need to take the right lead, no matter where we're going in the pen. So then you might say, well, Jake, all that counter cantering, you know, you're not, because the horse is now comfortable with that counter cantering circle and is relaxed about it, you can't use that tension and frustration to encourage the horse to switch leads for you. So how does that work? How do you actually start changing leads? And again, you're not thinking on the level that I'm talking about when it comes to getting that horse really dialed in and listening to the rider's legs. Because if you follow this system and you've got that horse, you're able to take any lead in any direction or angle or circle, no matter where you are in the arena, your horse is honest and honors your legs to that level. That's number one. And number two, you've done all that body control work and that leg yielding that we talked about earlier in this episode and that we touch on in our lead change video, again, linked down below, we show you how to set that horse up for successful lead changes by driving them off laterally and practicing, basically simulating the lead change and the leg pressure and everything that goes into that with the horse staying totally relaxed while honoring that leg and, and making a definite effort to move off of it, right? If you've got those pieces in place and the horse is super relaxed about it, changing leads literally becomes effortless. And that's what happened during this lesson, um, the first private lesson that we did. We got to that point where the owner is counter cantering around and then we took that onto a straight line and we're just kind of traveling around the arena. And so I told her, hey, right here, just kind of randomly, why don't you put your leg back and two track your horse off at the lope, just like we practiced at a walk and trot. Just do that for a few strides, you know, and we did that kind of going up and straight up and down the arena. And then when the horse was super relaxed about that, I had her drive the horse off a couple steps. And then I just said, now switch legs. And the horse, boom, executed that lead change flawlessly and stayed completely relaxed. Didn't break stride, didn't speed up. None of those problems that people typically deal with. And this is a horse that its lead change was pretty rough. It had kind of a habit of taking up speed, getting kind of pissy when it felt that leg come on. That's how it originally came into the lesson. 
But because of the program we followed, we got that horse so relaxed and chill and confident about honoring that rider's legs that then when we asked for the lead change, it was like an afterthought of like, oh yeah, and the horse just followed that feel, boom, no problem. That's what we call indirect training. We perfected and, and refined that lead change and got the horse super confident about it without drilling and hammering on the maneuver itself. It's the other stuff, the rest of the, the circles and then the straight line and driving the horse up soft and the counter cantering and then shaping on that counter canter circle. All those steps that we did to build up that horse's confidence and level of softness and respect for her legs. Then when we asked for the lead change, it was like not a problem at all. Now, again, that counter canter is something we continued to build on during training. So that lead change was even stronger when the owner came back for that follow-up lesson at the end. And that was one of the biggest breakthroughs that she had in, in that experience with us is, you know, and she told me multiple times, she's like, I can't get over how effortless that was. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's how it's supposed to be. It's no, lead changes are no longer a big deal. They're just kind of an element now that just naturally flows and fits in with the rest of your loping program. It's not a big hang up anymore. Now, one other little can of worms that we opened um, during our first lesson and then uh, something we worked on in training and then refined um, in our subsequent follow-up lesson was the backup as a maneuver. So obviously this horse, like a lot of horses, you pick up, you kind of draw back on the reins and have a little life in your feet and kind of bump up near the girth, you know, and this horse would back up at just kind of a normal medium pace, but is not really putting that extra effort in to rounding out their back and hustling backward like a show backup, like an actual maneuver. Or being self-propelled and carrying that momentum in a pretty way. Right. And this is a horse that has the talent to do it. But again, just like with the circling and the spins previously, it's kind of making the rider do all the work. You know, it's making her, if she wants to get a faster backup, she's got to pull harder and be kicking in a very obvious and, and not pretty looking way, which isn't really going to cut it when you go to show this horse in reining. So how do we get this dialed in and, and teach a more independent backup where the horse has more momentum? Well, let's talk about the stop for a minute. If you remember when we're doing that stop on woe exercise, first on the circle, then kind of on straight lines around the arena, even though we started to add a draw on the reins when we said woe, we're not stopping the horse off of our seat. All we're doing is just kind of releasing our feet into the stirrups a little bit. We're not throwing our weight back and doing anything really dramatic. We're just saying, whoa, and releasing our feet into the stirrups. And of course, when we add that draw element, picking up a little bit on their face. What we're going to do to build this back up into a real maneuver is our cue for that, in contrast to just your typical backup at a normal speed, like you know, you're trying to work a gate or do an obstacle course or something. You don't need that horse to be pedaling backward like they're in a reining show. We need a different cue for that higher level of intensity. So what we're going to do is use that same release of our feet, that same position that our feet are in in the stirrups, not way out in front of the horse's shoulders, but just kind of released with your weight pushing down into the stirrups and keeping your legs off the horse. This also mimics the position your feet will be in for the spin, because if you teach that the right way and you follow our program, you're not having to constantly kick 
you're only using leg pressure and bumping with rhythm when you need to add energy in the horse's feet. Otherwise, you get out of the horse's way and let them carry that momentum while you sit balanced in the saddle with your feet released into the stirrups, effectively giving that horse a release of pressure. And the leg motion, how we teach it to people that have never done that before, is like, think about bump, bump, release, bump, bump, release with your feet to build energy or to maintain energy in that spin because you get energy in the horse's feet and then get out of the way. We have a similar mentality when it comes to the backup. So my cue for the backup is to release my feet in that exact same way and pick up my hand just with a little bit of draw on the reins. Now, if the horse doesn't immediately hustle backward and respond, what am I going to do? Kick and be as aggressive as I need to about it to really hustle that horse's feet backward. And the second their feet break loose and speed up or brighten, as we say, I release my feet back forward again. My actual cue for the horse to stop is when I drop my hand all the way down to their neck and say the word, whoa. Okay, so only when my hand drops all the way down and and shuts completely off is that horse allowed to stop. Otherwise, if I've still got my hand picked up and my feet are released forward, just like with the spin, once I've got them started, they need to maintain that momentum. Now, in the beginning, of course, or if they're a little bit shaky about it, they won't. So you'll have to use that same mentality of, Bump, bump, release, bump, bump, release. And you're timing your ultimate release where you let the horse stop and rest with a sudden brightness or a sudden burst of energy in the feet. In other words, you're incentivizing just through repetition and habit that horse running backward into the release. And what you'll start to notice is without a lot of effort and and just mainly using your legs and guiding slightly with your hand, you don't really have to pull hard. And in fact, you don't want to because you'll get in the horse's way and inhibit the movement in their feet if you're cranking on their mouth. But if you have some feel about it and that your timing is good, that you're always releasing and rewarding when that horse actively speeds up, then you can do things like trot or lope forward, say the word whoa and release your feet, and then keep that hand picked up and draw that horse into a backup. And you'll feel that horse start to take responsibility for loading up, getting all their weight on their back end, and really pedaling and hustling back. There's an extra level of commitment there, of collection. That horse is really rounding out and making a genuine effort to hustle back and find that release that they know is back there. And they're trying to get to that as quick as they can. Just like we've built that desire when spinning of that horse to fight their body momentum that's pulling them out of the spin and stay actually back in the turn with you. It's that same idea where we've now got that horse taking responsibility for maintaining that balance and momentum in their feet. So that was a relatively easy thing for us to clean up, again, because this horse has some talent. Is it level four open world winning talent? No, but it's talented enough. It has some foot speed. And just like the spin, we're able to advance that back up to a high level, I'd say relatively quickly. That By the end of that first lesson, she was doing really well. And then it's just something I chipped away at in training to where, and we've got this on video as well, by the time of that second lesson at the end, she was really backing up and pedaling hard like a superstar. Now, One of the reasons that this horse was put in training with me, besides trying to kind of clean up and refine a lot of these maneuvers and just get them more consistent, was to actually put her in the bridle and get her doing all of this, but one-handed. 
And so you might say, well, okay, so we, we did all that in a snaffle two-handed and all that softening and everything else. Well, now we got to go to the bridle. Um, oh, crap. You know, and you, you ask a lot of people about that. They kind of draw a blank of how to get the horse started and, and transitioning to riding one-handed. Let me make this as simple as possible, and then we'll kind of break down some of the nuances. But at a basic level, every exercise I've just described, from the forward and around exercise and setting the horse up for spins, to softening them up in the face and driving them up into the bridle on the circle, to then taking that to a straight line, the leg yielding, all that body control stuff that we did, the counter cantering and just how we're loping around the arena and and encouraging that horse to stay put together and collected and soft. We literally follow the process all the way back through again, but one-handed this time, repeating every exercise and every step, but now we're doing it one-handed. So that's what we're going to get to. Now, what is the bridge or the actual steps to get there? We start by keeping the horse in a snaffle. And I talk about this in our, our videos linked below as well, where just gradually, as your horse gets better in the snaffle two-handed and is riding softer and softer, they're more confident about how to drive up to the bridle and get collected and soft, and they're no longer wiggling and leaning. They're just more straight and put together and more balanced overall. As the horse improves, while still in a snaffle, you start experimenting with not having your hands so wide and low, like you typically do when the horse is greener in a snaffle bit, you start experimenting with bringing your hands closer together and elevating them. So you go from having your hands wide and kind of, you know, being a little bit out in front sometimes and sort of leading that horse's nose like you would in the green colt stage, you gradually sort of evolve that to where your hands are closer together and they're elevated, kind of the angle of your rein pressure is sort of up towards your sternum bone at the top of your chest, simulating the angle that your hand will be pulling on their mouth when you're riding one-handed in the bridle. And of course, you kind of test the waters like that and, and try, even in a snaffle bit, applying pressure at that angle and just seeing how the horse responds. And then of course, you know, they hollow out, they, they try to climb out of the bridle, they're resistant, or they're kind of doing that wandery, searchy behavior looking for a release. If you need to, you can kind of widen your hands, widen the bridge of your reins, because you're still two-handed, if you need to correct something or help the horse find that spot that you were looking for. But you start kind of asking in a way that is more reminiscent of what it'll feel like when you're taking them one-handed. You build the horse's confidence that way, and that's kind of something you throw in over time in your training. So that was kind of my approach during the initial couple weeks of training this reining horse. We stayed in a snaffle. We kept everything the same, but I started experimenting with where my hands were at and what angle I was actually pulling on the reins. Once she got more comfortable with that feel, then while still in a snaffle, I started practicing going one-handed completely. Even in a snaffle where you, you don't have a lot of leverage like you would with an actual shank bit on with a port, you know, when I pick up and I put any pressure on her face, the reins are still at that same angle as they would be in a leverage bit. And I'm practicing that feel of being able to pick up and, and my main point with doing that, this is a huge misconception about neck reining that a lot of people have, which is that you shouldn't be touching the horse's face. There's this common mythic 
belief out there that a horse that neck reins really well, that they should follow your gaze and sort of your leg pressure on body positioning. And at most, you're laying the leather of that outside rein across their neck, but that if you actually pick up and pull and put pressure on the bit, that that is seen as a no-no. And in reality, you want to build the horse's confidence enough to where you can actually pick up and make contact with their mouth. You want that more direct line of communication. In this context, specifically for reining, I want that owner to, when she goes in the show, I want her to be able to pilot that horse around and put that horse's nose exactly where she needs it to go help that horse, even if they get a little bit lost momentarily, you know, showing out there in the big arena, banners on the fence, people clattering around, the horse is going to be distracted by something, especially if it hasn't been shown a lot, right? So the more controls and tools I have to get a hold of that horse's focus without them overreacting to that pressure or acting surprised about it, the better. Because that's what often happens. If people are in a habit of not really ever touching their horse's mouth when they ride around, then they get in a show environment where they need that control and they pick up and the horse acts like you've never touched its face before, right? So I don't want that. I want that horse to be super comfortable with when I do get in your mouth, stay relaxed about it and follow that feel because I'm here to help you. That's kind of the philosophy behind that. And I practice picking up and actually pulling and creating contact with the horse's mouth at the angle I will be if I was riding in a bridle. So I'll pick up and I'll draw that rein across kind of to my inside hip pocket. You know, if I'm asking that horse to turn left or right, or I'll draw up to the top of my chest to my sternum bone, taking that angle one-handed. If I'm asking that horse to bridle up on a straight line, I'll practice all those angles and getting in my horse's face and seeing what their reaction is when I establish that contact. Do they stay with me in an honest way or are they kind of searching and nodding their head and, and or trying to climb up out of the bridle and wanting an escape, right? So gradually build their confidence over time with that. And then we put this mare in the bridle for the first time. Um, And we actually tested a a couple different mouthpieces on her, both towards the end of her training when I was riding her one-handed a lot, and then during that follow-up lesson at the end with the owner, we experimented with a couple different mouthpieces. One of the bridles that she had was, um, and it had a joint in it, it was like your stereotypical kind of medium port correctional. And then the other one had a solid mouthpiece on it with kind of a similar size port, but it had a roller in it. And the horse really seemed to like that bridle better. She was less wiggly. You know, it's not that there was a huge difference, but there was a discernible difference in how she was packing herself around. And she just felt more put together and straight and less wiggly um, with that solid mouthpiece in. And even though the owner hadn't ridden in Ramel reins a lot, she actually started to prefer those to the regular leather splits just because the different hand position, kind of the different feel that those reins create. It seemed like the horse was having an easier time staying balanced and straight under her, and she just seemed more comfortable with that feel as opposed to your conventional leather split reins that she had previously. 
So that was kind of a fun time during our lesson was kind of tinkering and really zeroing in on what felt best for that horse and that rider. But of course, we had all the preparation and and had built the horse's confidence up to that point where we could tinker and refine things. And it wasn't a big fuss or a fight, and it wasn't a big obstacle to jump over to get the horse put in the bridle. It's just something that sort of evolved naturally through the course of our training. Another interesting conversation that you guys had that, you know, listeners might find helpful is how your rides are going to look different at home versus at a show, but how everything you're doing at home, the way you format your rides, kind of your whole philosophy and the exercises, how that's setting you up to do well showing or to be able to help your horse showing as well as make that show a good experience for your horse. So do you want to talk a little bit about how how that relates and how how you ride at home is going to be different and yet helpful to when you take it to a show. Right. There's an idea that I really buy into, which is I'm going to be extra picky about not just building my horse's confidence, but having them take over a significant proportion of the responsibility when it comes to a lot of these maneuvers. You know, very picky about getting them dialed in and focused on the circle so I don't have to micromanage them. Very picky about them maintaining their own momentum in the spin or in the backup. And so I'm going to have that extra level of independence at home. But when I go show, what I want to do is actually be able to step in and help my horse more. So, you know, I'm looking for ways basically to make showing a good experience for my horse where they actually enjoy being shown because the standards are slightly less, I'm there helping them more, guiding them a little bit more. I've got a little more contact on their face, for example, in the spin than I would at home normally. I'll still practice that at home occasionally, again, like we just referred to. So they're not getting surprised that when I am out in public, I'm picking up on them, right? But the point of all of this is I've got the horse knowing and understanding their job and having some degree of independence with these maneuvers at home. Then when I go show, I'm there helping them more than I normally would when we're just practicing. And it's a more enjoyable and comfortable experience for that horse. But the way you went about your training at home was in equal doses of, in certain areas, you're demanding that horse to be more self-propelled, more self-disciplined along with being comfortable with you calling them out or helping them or picking up on them in a bigger way at home. That way, when you go to help them at a show, they're not surprised or taken aback. You know, they're they're willing and able to follow that help, if that makes sense. So it's equal doses of, you know, they're self-propelled, they well and truly know their job without help, but they're accepting of that help. That way, when you're in a new environment and you are offering little help, you're piloting them a little bit more more actively, they're accepting and, you know, that just ups your performance there. Exactly. One thing that's always on my mind is like my job and my responsibility as a rider, really what it comes down to is I'm there almost like a facilitator to help the horse put himself in a better position than he would otherwise do naturally if left to his own devices to accomplish whatever task or maneuver in front of us. And that goes from everything to sorting out a sick cow in the feedlot to running down and stopping in the show pen. It's the same thing. 
I want my horse to know their job and be confident in it, but also accept my help to just add that extra little bit of refinement and crispness and immediacy. And we really hit on that a lot during our follow-up lesson at the end of the training, you know, and it was really enjoyable to see that, to see the progress we had made. For example, this rider had gone from not ever really feeling what a real rundown and stop felt like on the horse to running her down at like a medium speed and still able to pick up in a committed way and slide 15 feet as if it was nothing, right? You know, that's the, that's what we built to. Now it took a lot to get there. And that's, you know, as we start to wrap this podcast up, I hope we've done a good job of laying out our program and kind of the steps that we went through to evolve this horse and owner and get them to a higher level. Because now they've put a lot of those problems they had previously behind them. Their spin is really dialed in. The horse is super confident. The backup, how it's circling and just loping around in general, how much more collected she is, how much stronger and more balanced the horse feels. Lead changes being really smooth and effortless. Um, The stops, of course, that's kind of a new thing that wasn't there previously. So we've got all that on the horse and we've got all this all these exercises in this entire program to keep them sharp. So now this horse and owner are in a really fun stage of their horsemanship where they're able to focus on refining. You know, she's going to go on the road this year with this horse and and go to some shows and, and start really getting her feet wet and doing this thing for real, which is something she's always wanted to do. And they'll get to a point here in the near future where they don't, quite frankly, need us anymore. I'm still going to go to maybe a show or two and help coach while they're there um, and be on call to help keep things sharp or if they need a, the odd coaching session here and there. But the heavy lifting is done. They they are now in that fun stage where you're just kind of gradually refining things, keeping them sharp, and just continuing to build that relationship. And it's only going to get stronger from here. Now, if this were one of those like testimonials that you see on ads and infomercials for things where there's a disclaimer that says results not typical, you know, in other words, kind of passing off responsibility. Well, when we talk about scenarios like this with working with our clients through these private lessons and through training, it's not that there was anything special about this particular horse or rider. They came in with a lot of struggles and a a lack of confidence in some key areas, which is what everyone has when they come work with us. And these results and kind of that transformation that we went through, through these lessons and training, that is very typical for us. We've worked with owners that have horses even more talented than this one, or in a lot of cases, less talented. But the degree of the change of the positive transformation is something that is consistent with us across the board. So yes, in our case, these results are typical and you can reasonably expect to have these same results if you work with us. And there's a couple different ways to do that. This particular horse owner, and she left a really cool testimonial for us on Facebook as well. Her name is Carrie. So you can go to facebook.com slash Horses if you want to just see a few words that she wrote about her experience. But how she initially started with us was what we call our up-level lesson program. This is a more high-end, it's basically a two-plus-day lesson package where you either come out to our farm and spend several days riding with us and get like an intensive 
personally tailored lesson. That's what Carrie chose to do. Or in a lot of cases, we have clients that actually will fly us out to where they live and ride just because they would prefer not to have to travel and they want us to come work at their facility. Either way, what we create is like a dedicated two-day workshop for you either solo or sometimes if it's a small group of friends or family members that are riding with the host of the lesson, we create an experience that is really tailored to the needs of the horse and the riders that are participating. And you can go to our website, lundallperformance.com slash uplevel to see more details about that program. I could talk more about that, but the bottom line is we get way better results faster than a traditional horsemanship clinic. We also have a couple options for training depending on what level your horse is at. Right now as we record this, we wrapped up a really cool series of lessons for a horse that was in our academy program, Dream Horse Academy, which is an eight-week training program. This two-year-old is a baby by a stallion called Epic Titan, and it was really cool that even though that academy program is more of a foundation training and kind of an all-around education for the horse. We got groundwork, riding, obstacles, riding inside and out, and just basic horsemanship and ground manner skills, kind of the full spectrum there. That horse's athletic talent was really starting to shine through towards the end of the training. And when that owner came out, and she's never ridden a show horse before, and she felt this horse <laughs> when she she got on him for the first time and is riding him around and she stops and goes, Oh my gosh, compared to my other horses, he feels like a Cadillac. This is amazing. And so she wanted additional performance handling on him and more advanced riding. And so we were able to start teaching him some of the things we alluded to in this episode because she did additional training and put the horse in our performance program, which in contrast to the academy, we're not really doing any groundwork anymore. We're not doing a lot of obstacles. We kind of save all that horse's energy for the riding, and the focus is on advancement. Some of those horses are obviously two-year-olds that are going to be show horses like this one. Others are older horses that need more refinement, and that's what this mare did. Carrie's horse, it was here for a month of performance training. So the focus of the programs is slightly different, but we have these training packages and tailor them depending on what the horse needs. If it needs a foundation, we've got a more comprehensive program for that. If it's a performance horse that needs refinement or you want that advanced handle put on them, we got a program for that as well. And of course, all that stuff is up on our website. That's lundallperformance.com. I've linked that below in the episode description as well. Feel free to check that out, and there's ways to get in touch with us directly if you want to ask questions about our program or pursue something like that. Both of these owners, the owner of that two-year-old and the reigning horse that we've been talking about this episode, they watched those exact videos that I have linked down below. They had never heard of Lundahl Performance before, but they watched those videos. They wanted to have these buttons and things put on their horses. They wanted to work with us to up their skills and get better and get more confident. And while they have different goals and their horses are at different stages and different ages, of course, they're fundamentally on the same program in the same trajectory. And that's what we do around here. We help people and horses get to a more advanced level, making advanced horsemanship accessible. As always, thanks for listening. Check out the links below and we'll talk to you guys next time.